0: hello and welcome to this edition of the berlin policy journal podcast i'm henning hoff executive editor the coronavirus pandemic is having an unprecedented effect on international affairs particularly in europe in world interrupted our latest issue our contributors explore the current state of things and what they expect one of them is david goodhart a british journalist and author the founder and former editor of prospect magazine He is now with the London Think Tank Policy Exchange, where he heads the Demography, Immigration and Integration Unit. He argues for taking a step back from what he describes as hyper-globalization. We caught up with David at his London home. Like all of our guests in this episode, he joined us remotely. Welcome to the program, David.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: In your piece, um, you write that the COVID-19 crisis illustrates the dangers of hyper-globalization. Could you elaborate?
1: Yes, I mean, I think it's sort of become part of the common sense in a way of the response to the crisis that our supply chains made us vulnerable in some ways. This is the the recent form of globalisation of recent decades has, has clearly been responsible for creating you know huge quantities of new global wealth and has reduced poverty in some of the poorest countries in the world. There are many, many good things about it but clearly just at the very basic level at the speed with which the virus spread itself around the world reveals a new vulnerability of the much greater connectivity that we have. But then I think there's a sort of second whole cluster of issues around the vulnerabilities that is exposed in our economies. Now this is obviously different from economy to economy, you know, Germany's health system had more of a cushion than Britain's, say. And so this depends partly on differences in domestic policy. But overall, uh, I think there is a very strong feeling that we have become over-dependent on production from certain parts of the world. This is partly to do with just building in you know, a degree of cushion and resilience into our supply chains that perhaps there wasn't there before. I mean, I think that's there's a, probably, I think, quite a high degree of consensus around that. We then move to another aspect of this around which there is probably less consensus, which is whether one should, wherever possible now, perhaps try to reshore some industries. I mean, some of this was happening anyway, by the way. We'd probably passed the peak of hyperglobalization in the last few years. Our world trade actually fell last year. We haven't had a new proper global trade deal, I think, since 1993. You know, we've had, obviously, the trade tension between the US and China. So some of what we're talking about here is is merely the the sort of continuation with you know the covid-19 crisis giving a further impetus to trends that were already there beforehand um but so i think one can divide it between the the relatively small changes about which there is quite a lot of consensus you know no longer being dependent on a sort of single supplier from china or vietnam of some significant um particularly health related product and then there's a sort of broader debate about reshoring strategic industries you know state support for industries and then you start running up against the rules of the European Union and indeed other international bodies which place quite strict limits on the extent to which states are allowed to support industries within trade arrangements and so on and i think there are a lot of trends that are pushing the direction of a more fundamental rethink of trade arrangements, we, you know, without lurching back into protectionism. I and mean, I do think, you know, we have learnt the lesson of the 1930s. I mean, no serious political figure is advocating a kind of return to protectionism. No, it's, it's possible that one might slide into it kind of by mistake. And, and this partly comes down to choices that national democracies will make, I think. And indeed, you know national consumers will make in some ways to what extent are we ready uh, to pay a few dollars more for our iphone and to see it produced closer to home perhaps people are producers as well as consumers and the current model of globalization has tended to focus on individual voters in western national democracies it has tended to see them primarily as consumers
0: I understand you, you come down the side of people who say, yeah, we need more onshoring, We need a return to a more national-oriented economic policy. How how big are the chances that this is happening now, coming out of the crisis?
1: I don't really know. I mean, I think I think there's a reasonable chance. I mean, you've seen some of the things that President Macron has been saying. France has always been perhaps somewhat more statist than either Germany or the UK, at least until recently. I think these currents are quite strong. I mean, look at the US. I mean, the attempt to to paraphrase it, to sort of bring back the supply chain from China is not a Trumpian eccentricity at all. I mean, there's a, there's a very wide consensus in the US political class that essentially they took a gamble in the early 90s embracing China, bringing it into the global economy and the world trade system in the belief that this would... Turn China into a liberal democracy. Perhaps that was naive. But that is what people seem to think. And they've been very disappointed. And they think the current terms are simply unfair, that China breaks the rules, too much of the supply chain has ended up there and has made the US over dependent on one Chinese producer in too many uh, areas of the economy. I think that feeling is widely shared too, in Europe. And, you know, the general sort of China scepticism that is likely to emerge from the crisis, partly related to their culpability for the outbreak and their failure to control it and their failure to stop thousands of flights leaving Wuhan into the outside world, while they were very strict on controlling it within China, um, all those things, I think, are going to contribute to a, you know, we're not going to have deglobalization. What we're going to have is sort of more national caveats more qualifications to the current system of globalization. And as I say, this was sort of happening anyway. And I think yeah, C-19 will give it a shove.
0: And this sort of uh, pushing China back or sort of deintegrate uh, with China,
1: that that's, that's the key part of it? What you're seeing is a sort of confluence of n- not only, there's a new skepticism about unqualified free trade, unqualified global free trade in general, but that combines with... Two other very important forces, one of which is technological, that actually technology now allows for more local production in some ways, 3D printers and so on. I mean, a, the ability to revive manufacturing, even in highly developed countries where most of the economy is and will remain service based, technology now makes it easier to reshore in certain sectors, so far as I understand it, the other big thing, of course, is um, the much greater concern for the environment. Just looking at the sort of macro political trends coming out of this crisis, I think it's going to be a kind of odd confluence of a kind of small C conservatism, even a big C conservatism, in some some places. In that, the the crisis has reinforced. The nation state, this has not been a great crisis for international bodies, whether it the EU, the WHO, whatever. In a crisis, you know, we look to our nation states, our national political classes, our, our national leaders for guidance and for, for authority. So it's certainly been a strengthening of the nation state, national social contracts too. You know, we've closed our economies and collectively... Underwritten the cost of that at the national level. Of course, there will be some European programs too, but I mean, essentially, this crisis has reinforced the national. um, You might say it's reinforced the family, it's reinforced the local. It's a small c conservative crisis in many ways. It's also, however, a social democratic crisis in the sense that it's centered on health systems, it's centered on ideas of care and solidarity you know this is a crisis you might say of the sort of centre-left public sector professionals um, you know who are already an extremely important force in our societies so it'll be both conservative and I think social democratic certainly you know in, in almost all countries I suspect spending on health and care and welfare more generally which is already a very large part of our of our national budgets will increase another step you know in german terms it's a sort of black green crisis i think because the third element is is the environmental one this is this is also a green crisis i mean it's a or rather a crisis that will boost you know the um um strong sentiments about um you know care preservation uh, you know of human bodies has been the Kind of headline of the last few weeks, but I think that sentiment, you know, is will extend in an environmental direction, um, and and environmentalists tend to be localists too. And to the extent that the crisis is as has been one of overextended global supply chains, you know that that will also play into a more localist green agenda. So I think it's a sort of conservative, national, localist, environmentalist social democratic um, forces are all going to be strengthened. And in some ways, that's bad news for, you know, big L and small L liberalism. It's bad news for sort of free trade liberals. It's bad news for people who put individual liberty before collective security. We're already having all these debates around the apps that we use to trace the virus and so on. I think you know, mo- most Europeans are quite happy to trade liberty for security when it comes to the crunch.
0: Couldn't one make the opposite argument and say, well, this crisis really is is only solvable on the international level, and that these go-it-alone national approaches to deal with this crisis are, in the end,
1: misguided? I think that's a sort of false distinction. I don't think anyone is really talking about deglobalization. We've learned the lessons of the 1930s. I mean, we're not going to have um, tit-for-tat protectionism. But that doesn't preclude building in some caveats to the existing... Form of globalisation. It certainly doesn't preclude international cooperation. Obviously, modern, sophisticated nation states are incredibly interdependent and there's no reason for that to change. The forms of interdependence might change. It'll be interesting to see, you know, will free movement return in exactly the same form that we had it in the past? Will state aid rules... State aid rules will presumably be suspended for years. But that's not the same as sort of chucking out international cooperation. That's changing the terms of international cooperation, increasing, as it were, the remit of the nation-state somewhat in the sort of chemical formula of cooperation. Thank you very much, David. Well, thank you very much for inviting me.
0: So, is deglobalization just another word for the West disentangling itself from China? During the coronavirus crisis, Beijing's behavior has irritated many in Europe and beyond. China has been openly propagandistic in its approach to helping other states. Some of its diplomats have been disseminating misinformation and behaving aggressively. US President Donald Trump has talked about ending all trade with China in response. The European stance is less a word, but it has certainly started to change. When German Chancellor Angela Merkel and French President Emmanuel Macron presented their idea for a 500 billion euro EU recovery fund on May the 18th, they also stressed the need for a resilient and sovereign European economy and industrial base. It was a warning to China that from now on, European countries will shield their strategic industries from outside investment. For a perspective on how the Europe-China relationship is developing, we turn to Didi Kirsten Tetlow. Senior Fellow at the Asia Program of the German Council on Foreign Relations, or DGRP. Formerly a correspondent based in Hong Kong, she has first hand experience of getting in China's crosshairs. Welcome to the program, Didi.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Beijing has tried to take advantage of the COVID 19 crisis, particularly in Europe. Which efforts did you find particularly striking?
2: Really quite a few efforts. We've seen a flurry of activity, diplomatic, political, economic, aid-related, to counter the negative image that this crisis has created in Europe of China as being a source of disease, etc., which is, of course, a difficult situation to be in for China, And of course, then related to that, the censorship, which accompanied it and the cover up allegations and realities, which they've also been fighting. So I think specifically in terms of um, how it's reacted, we should single out disinformation. There's been an awful lot of that happening at different levels through media, through Twitter, through social media, through outreach to friendly or supposedly friendly persons in Europe, including in Germany, including in the government, to spread a positive story about how China's handled this crisis and that China's political system is somehow superior to that of democracies. We've seen also in the diplomatic front the so-called wolf warrior diplomacy, very aggressive words coming from Chinese diplomats who are increasingly connected in Western social media, which is, of course, not accessible to anyone in China without a special VPN, therefore not to the Chinese public. And these people are increasingly networked with each other, and these messages then get amplified throughout the world. So it's very effective. I think also we need to mention the issue of the ritual gift giving of personal protective equipment from China. When China early on got these donations from Europe, for example, they requested they be made very quietly. European governments followed that request. However, when they started to come back, after the peak of the disease in China, as it was deepening in Europe, very often these face masks and surgical gowns and such like and rubber gloves were accompanied with real political ritual, i.e. karma meters at the airport, check leaders, you see, this kind of message. And that was intended to send a message of power and influence, of the power and influence of China toward Europe.
0: Some people seem to think that the Chinese overreach, that they went about too aggressively in in this sort of uh, new offensive. Um, Would you agree with with those who say that that, um, China is actually now losing Europe as a consequence?
2: I think that, in terms of winning or losing Europe in terms of the public opinion discussion in Europe about China in terms of china's image in europe it I think it's a mixed picture still. I think that for the first time, really, we are seeing in Europe the growth of a sort of a deep seated hesitation or questioning toward China and what impact the political system there and also the economic system and its ambitions in the world could have upon European societies and what that means for individuals in Europe as well as our political structures. So I think that this virus crisis has indeed created that suspicion, if you like, or that hesitation About accepting the Chinese narrative of what it is as being this benign force. It's made it more difficult. But on the other hand, I think that there's also an ambiguity still within the European response. And I would connect that very much to the fact that Europe, particularly countries like Germany and France, are economically, you know, they have powerful industrial lobbies, which are very, still pushing very hard for a continuation of this rather uncritical relationship with China in in many ways and and, and forms. So I think that it's still a mixed picture. I think it's actually a dissonance opening up there between industrial business interests in China, which are powerful here in Europe. And um, I think how the public is actually viewing what China represents to the world in terms of being a threat or a friend, if you like.
0: How do you see um, European Chinese relations uh, developing in the future? This recent trend of sort of becoming more sceptical, more critical of 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 China, will this continue, or do you think that that things will get to uh, back to to where we were before the crisis?
2: I don't think that relations between China and Europe will return to where they were before the crisis. I think the shock of this health uh, disaster has simply run too deep in Europe. And I think that Europeans are starting to understand for the first time, what are the realities on the ground in China, in terms of power and also of health and how things work, most importantly, in terms of how China manages information in order for the Communist Party to stay in control, because that really is the key issue in terms of maintaining control in China, and how it can affect Europe, how it can affect people's lives here. So where's the relationship going? Clearly, there's going to be more scepticism in Europe toward China. And I think that what this boils down to then is that in Europe, we are really at a kind of a decision moment where the decisions we make now going forward are extremely important. We need to build into this enormous economic recovery program that is planned here. We need to build in a kind of a... A fitness for the future, which includes protecting European democracy, protecting the open society, protecting these open economies from rather predatory behaviour. From a country like China, which has this huge state owned industry, which is very targeted in what it invests in, um, in terms of information control, to stop these information control efforts or simply the ability to exercise information control from spreading to Europe. I do think that Europe has been sitting on the fence for quite a few years now. And I do think it's time for Europe to get off the fence and start to really robustly stand up for what it believes in and defend what it has.
0: Thank you very much, Didi.
2: Thank you very much.
0: The coronavirus pandemic has impacted China's global ambitions, including the gigantic Belt and Road Initiative. Our correspondent Jacob Medal, has traveled from Brussels to Beijing to cover the initiative for us. His return journey on the New Silk Road was cut short by the pandemic, but he made it safely back to the United Kingdom. From the peace and quiet of a suburban English garden, he reflects on what might be next for China's relationship with the rest of the world.
3: This is English suburbia, not the Kazakh steppes or a Tajik bazaar where I might demonstrate to you the busy relevance of China's New Silk Road. But, as ever, the Belt and Road is not far from my mind, and as this current pandemic has so dramatically illustrated, we who live in this world are all inescapably connected, or to borrow Xi Jinping's favourite policy slogan, we share in a community of common destiny. There's a shallow irony in the fact that the Belt and Road is all about bringing us closer together, whereas this pandemic has us quite literally standing further apart. Forecasters are currently trying to predict which force will triumph, international togetherness born of shared suffering or isolationism and division. I can't claim to know the future of the Belt and Road. We will be riding the waves of this momentous point in human history for decades to come. New trends are difficult to spot. Sometimes it seems that, so-called historical turning points simply deepen and crystallise existing divisions, creating changes in degree, not kind. That is certainly true about this divide between China and what we call the West, the powers that were. The pandemic has brought US-China relations to terrifying new lows and provided a campaign device for Trump, who cast Biden as a friend of China. It has been the catalyst for Beijing's economic punishment of Australia for its defiance. And here in the UK, Conservative MP Tom Tugendhat says the virus underlines the need for Britain to re-examine China's place in the world. Xi Jinping, in his telephone diplomacy across the world, insists on the need for a community of common destiny. The question before this pandemic was always, who will share in this destiny envisaged by China? Now, in coronavirus times, it seems we are closer than ever to an answer.
0: And that's all for this edition of the Berlin Policy Journal podcast. Thanks to my editorial colleagues, Shivon Dowling and Noah Gordon, and to our producer, Susan Stone. Thanks for listening,
2: and be well.